but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This is my second conversation with Anne Law, and I reached back out after I read a really powerful account of her experience drinking ayahuasca nine months ago. And how following this experience, in her words, she is not depressed anymore. She quit drinking, and for the first time ever, she feels truly happy to be alive. So naturally, I wanted to dig into this, and we did a deep dive into her plant medicine experience and her reflections since that. And then we also talked about why linear goals are inherently fragile as compared with what she calls growth loops, how her relationship to ambition shifted after ayahuasca, her favorite mental model, liminal versus liminoid spaces, the importance of metacognition, and so much more. This episode also doesn't have any sponsors, but it is, I believe, the 51st episode And if you've been enjoying these conversations, it would be so awesome if you could take a moment to open up either Spotify or Apple, whatever you're listening to, give it a quick review or rating. It helps others find the podcast, helps me getting new guests, and it also feels really great. I'm going to be pouring more creativity and attention into the podcast over the coming months. We've got some really awesome guests lined up, so any support you can give in the form of reviews or sharing is so appreciated. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get to it. Dive into the conversation with the one and only Anne Law. Hello there, Anne Law. It's a absolute pleasure to have you back here. Thanks so much for having me, Johnny. How are you feeling right now in three words? Tired, excited, creative. Beautiful. So since this is our second conversation, and I already know that you were super curious about dinosaurs as a kid, (laughs) the question that I'd like to begin with is, what are you currently curious about that maybe wasn't so much on your radar when we had our first conversation three years ago? Um, I'm currently very curious about creativity and neurodiversity. I study Mm. neurodiversity as part of my PhD research. And Mm. I specifically look at learning, so not necessarily creativity, but uh, in a lot of conversations that I'm having with people in the Nest Labs community or people in our little corner of Twitter or friends, Mm. I realize that a lot of neurodivergent people seem to have some sort of superpower when it comes to creativity. Maybe mm. it's due to the way they see the world differently, um, or maybe it's because they had to become more creative because of the way our society is designed. So to be able to achieve the same goals as neurotypical people, they had to find creative solutions. But mm. this is something that I find fascinating and there's very little research around it at the moment. So most of what I've been learning has been coming from hearing from the experiences of of people sharing mm. what they've been through and how they feel about it. Mm, fascinating. Um, I actually randomly posted on Twitter. I'm kind of researching neurodiversity myself for nervous system mastery. And the the, the post where it blew up, I mean, there were, I think, over 100 comments of people sharing their experience, research they've learned. Um, I, I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that you've found which 
you know, might have implications for people. So some of the things I've, I've heard are neurodivergent people sometimes have like lower degrees of interoception. Maybe their, their nervous systems are more sensitive. What are some of the, the themes or the threads that you're, you're discovering that are interesting? Some of the things that I find interesting is how their reward system seems to be working a little bit differently. And you see that both in ADHD and in autism, where they mm -hmm. seem to be getting a kick out of uh, like experiments and trying new things and finding new patterns, connecting ideas in a way that is a lot more powerful than you would see in neurotypical people. So um, you would see that with uh, some people with ADHD, for example, where Uh, falling into a Wikipedia rabbit hole and connecting ideas and and trying to, to see how all of these things work together is going mm. to give them deep intellectual pleasure. They're going yeah. to really enjoy that in in a way that is similar to maybe, you know, more like a neurotypical person would enjoy reading a novel, for example. So two completely different experiences and, and an mm. equal amount of pleasure um and it's it's we don't really understand why that's the case at the moment but i find it fascinating mm. I, i know from um i have a number of friends who have adhd and i know that they they're easily distracted with things that they don't really care about but when they find something that's like that you know that just really lights them up they'll be in a you know in that flow state for like five hours straight <laughs> to this like insane amount of focus um, and i guess that's related to dopamine pathways and things like that but Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on, on that or like why that is, or is that something you've seen as well? Yes. Uh, so that's actually called hyperfocus. And, uh, and this is definitely something that you observe with people who have ADHD. And this is why exactly as you described, they can disappear for hours on end, <laughs> just being on their computer and, uh -huh. yeah. and what's. They can, and it's, it's so interesting how they can, they can be sometimes very distracted, but when they're in that hyper-focused state, you can almost be next to them and tell them, Hey, uh, do you want something? Do you want a cup of coffee? Do you, do you want to go for a walk? And mm -hmm. they won't even hear you. Mm -hmm. They'll be so focused on what they're doing that they won't hear you. Um, so again, like that's probably, uh, linked to, to their, their dopamine pathways and their reward system. Um, and they, they basically kind of treat, this is also why a lot of them tend to enjoy video games, having this reward mm -hmm. of solving a challenge or finding an answer to a question, which is, very often enabled in a in a very efficient way by digital devices and computers and your phone so it's kind of two sides of the same coin at the 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 positive obviously is that they're going to be able to to focus for a very long time and very intensely on something that they're interested in but the other side of the coin is that they may also develop addictive behaviors mm. when it comes to digital devices Uh, mm -hmm. because the, the mechanisms are very similar. Mm, yeah, interesting. I, I actually have a really good friend who um, has ADHD and she she says that for her having social accountability and like support and structure in place like makes such a difference in her life. Like being able to do things with other people seems to be, or having like external accountability seems to be really key for her. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and even when it comes to, coming out of that phase, you know, you, you could spend 
days on end just being on your computer and reading things online and uh, and having fun in your digital playground mm -hmm. having people around you who just remind you that hey there's there's a world outside <laughs> as well <laughs> yeah definitely that's also very helpful it's helpful for, i mean for us too <laughs> like I, i definitely true. fall into that trap sometimes as well on, on twitter um oh, amazing yes. well, well so you're currently studying for phd which is with new and i also i think i read that you uh you're either about to teach or you have taught your first class to or your first lecture on neuroscience and physiology um what was what was that on what are you what are you teaching on So I'm going to teach that class very soon, and it's actually very relevant to what we were just talking about. It's mm. about neuroscience in the digital world, mm. and so the good, the bad, the ugly. And mm. I talk uh, about lots of of different aspects. Um, you know, I mostly talk about how digital designers, whether they are creating landing pages or mobile applications or even designing social media platforms, how they use neuroscience to design those experiences mm -hmm. and how that can be used for good mm. in the sense that, so an example that I, I give uh, is the Oak app for meditation and breathwork, for example, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. your realm. Um, but they basically use a lot of the um, triggers that you see used for like streaks, et cetera, but like to make you, to help you build healthy habits. Right. And on the other end, you have other applications like Instagram and Tinder that use also neuroscience-based triggers like infinite scrolling or infinite swiping to keep you using the app and to increase engagement. And mm -hmm. you are trying actually to develop to make you develop addictive behaviors when it comes to these apps. So it's the same research-based principles that are used for design, but with very different objectives from the developers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, I had a conversation with a guy called Max Stossel on the podcast and he worked for the time well spent movement. Um, and they, you know, say similar things. And, and, and something that I believe is, is just how, important our attention and the quality of our awareness is as like there's like a scarce resource and it seems like these digital um tricks in a way like they can be used for good or for ill and it's almost like our subjective interpretation is like is this you know it, it, meditating or breath work most of us would say well yeah that is time well spent that's a good use of our time versus endlessly scrolling and collapsing our awareness in and like and like numbing out as well and a question that comes to mind for me is just as you were saying that is like what's the quality of our awareness like are we aware of our body like while we're doing these things or is it a way that we can just check out of our like human experience and and be in in some digital place i i would take it even further than just bodily awareness we the reason why these experiences are of scrolling like for hours are so addictive, it's not only because we forget about our body, but we forget about the rest of the contents in our mind as well. Mm -hmm. So it is a way, it's a form of escapism. It's a way to turn off our thoughts for mm -hmm. a little while. And unfortunately, we know it's not a healthy way to do it because 
dependent of that is that very often and it's very, very common. We've all experienced it, but the feelings we have after a an infinite scrolling session that lasted for an hour is guilt. Mm. And we don't feel we don't feel better. Mm. Um, and so when you think about it, it's very similar to other ways we have to numb our feelings, whether right. they're physical or psychological. Mm. Alcohol, for example where you will have a few drinks, which will help you forget about any kind of psychological or sometimes physical pain that you may be, you may be experiencing. Mm -hmm. But the morning after, what do you feel? Again, it's the same thing. You feel guilt. Mm, yeah. Yeah. In, in the, the work that I've studied, it, it, they're known as defensive accommodation strategies. And it's basically ways in which we kind of downregulate ourselves using external substances or, or scrolling and things because of our lack of capacity to downshift for ourselves. Um, so it, it sounds like your your lecture is going to be like a, like a defense against the dark arts. Like, are you kind of teaching people how to how to like guard themselves against these <laughs> demonic strategies? <laughs> I love I love that. Um, this is this is going to be part of an applied neuroscience course, and so it's targeted at neuroscientists that are maybe going to be working with industry practitioners in the future. So you're right that it is a little bit of uh, you know it's 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 a, it's not defense against the dark arts. It's really don't become Voldemort yourself. That I'm going to try to teach. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they're linked. <laughs> <laughs> that would make a great title um awesome well i i'm curious like what what drew you to studying the brain and studying neuroscience in the first place like what led you to you know want to do a phd like that's a significant undertaking i started my path in a very um as paul millard would say on the default path <laughs> i uh i I studied business. I worked at Google. I had a, you know, very, you know, successful career there. Everything was going well. And at some point I realized that I knew exactly what steps I needed to take next if I wanted to achieve the common definition of success that everyone had in my industry. And it suddenly felt very boring. Mm -hmm. To you know, it's a metaphor I often use to describe the feeling I had at the time is that of being spoiled uh, about a movie. Like you, you see the spoilers and you just don't want to watch the movie anymore. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I had to try and do something different, something that had a little bit more uncertainty. And so I left Google and I worked on a few startups. What I didn't realize at the time is that I was just kind of like switching to a different ladder, still mm. in the default mm -hmm. path because yep. I was yeah, still following the playbook of Silicon Valley and still doing what you're kind of supposed to do next in that kind of career path in tech. Um, when I realized that that wasn't for me, then I was completely lost because for the, ve the very first time in my life, I didn't have a map anymore. I didn't know what was the next step. I didn't know what was the logical thing to do. And so I went back to the drawing board and asked myself, what is something that I am interested in, I've always been interested in and would love to keep on learning about, even if money and status were out of the equation. And in my case, that was the brain, the mind, 
uh, why do we feel what we feel? Why do we think the way we think? Why do we connect with others in the way we connect with others? Mm. And so that's why I decided to go back to school and to study neuroscience at the time to do a master's degree, which I've completed. And once I finished that, I, I just, I had so much fun. This was really, I felt like when I was younger, when I did my very first master's degree in my early twenties, I was not appreciative enough of that opportunity to spend my entire days just learning, asking mm -hmm. questions. Yeah. I was, in fact, I was pretty annoyed at it. I was like, why do I have to go to school? Why do you know, like, <laughs> I'd rather hang out with my friends. Like that's, uh -huh. that's what I want to do. And going back to school at an older age made me a lot more appreciative of that mm. opportunity and that privilege that it is to have access to all of these resources, whether it's books or classes, but also all of those very smart minds, those teachers that you can ask questions to, those other students you can, you can kind of think about big questions uh, together mm. with. And so I felt like I couldn't stop there and that I wanted to keep on going. And so that's, that's why I applied for a PhD. Mm, wow. I love that. And when you were saying that, like, almost the fear of seeing the path ahead. I, I, <laughs> I've been asked a number of times, like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years or where do you see yourself in 10 years? And it's like, I, I want to live in a way that in five or 10 years time, I'm doing a thing that like, I would have no conception of today. Like, like that to me is like an exciting life. It's like, it's like the spirit of adventure. It's like, you don't know what is coming, but you're following these, these intuitions, these kind of impulses, this aliveness basically. Um, which I think is antithetical to just like a, a linear default, like, I mean, safe, yes, which is, is great, but it's just, I mean, ultimately boring, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. There's this, uh, saying that I can't remember where I saw it, but a, something along the lines of you want to grow so much that you don't recognize yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I think that's similar to what you just said in the sense that I love that today I can look back five years ago and, and, you know, the, the Anne Laura from five years ago would have no idea that it's even possible to do what I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I want to feel the same way in five years when I look back. Mm, yeah. I love that. So, so let's, I mean, let's, let's dive into, um, that question uh, and something that I really wanted to talk to you about um, is the subject of, of plant medicine and how it relates to mental health. Um, and I, I pulled a quote from your annual review, which is, is beautiful, by the way, I'd, I'd really recommend listeners check it out. It was very articulate. Um, and the line that I pulled was um, the same way every year, every week, every day of my life had started as far as I could remember with a sense of emptiness as if my mind was a disassociated observer watching the movie of my life from outside. I had become used to the familiar claws of depression. It was like a shadow following me everywhere. And so could you maybe share for listeners, like what, what else do you recall from that period? Um, and, and, and what, what were some of the things that you struggled with during those years? I have 
struggled with depression for most of my life. And that's something that I haven't talked about a lot at the time. I partly because I felt very privileged in a sense that I was a very functional depressive person. Mm. <laughs> Which is common, right? It's it's re it's really common, I think. Yes, no, absolutely. And now that I've started opening up a lot more about it, I've actually found so many people telling me, oh, me too. Like and and feeling this sense of of shame that mm. we're still doing quite well from the outside. So we don't necessarily want to complain about how it feels in the inside or rather how it doesn't feel like anything in the, in the inside sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's always this, uh, kind of unhealthy comparison of pain with others where we minimize our own experience because we feel like, uh, some people have it worse than me, so I'm not going mm -hmm. to make a big deal of what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And that was very much how I was feeling at the time. And so, yes, very functional. I journey was waking up every morning, feeling completely empty. I was using alcohol as a crutch at the time to, I mean, to the point of what we just talked about earlier in this conversation to mm -hmm. numb my feelings, to numb my thoughts and yeah, rinse with alcohol and repeat the day after. That was basically my, mm -hmm. my pattern. And, and again, it never really got in the way of me doing the things that I wanted to do, even though that now that I've quit drinking, I realized mm -hmm how much more I could have done at the time. And by more, I don't even talk about achievements or things like that. I just mean experiencing life and connecting mm. with people. And I realize now that I don't have this layer of numbness over everything that mm. I could have done much more at the time, but it's okay. It's uh, It was probably necessary for me to go through that experience and to grow mm. from it and to become the person that I am today. So I don't have any regrets or remorses about it, but yeah, mm. that was my, that was my experience at the time. And I really, really thought that it would just keep on going like this forever. I had just accepted it as what life was like. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And I, I feel like those experiences also really give us compassion for a lot of others who are experiencing that. And, and like you say, I mean, I, I speak to founders who, you know, maybe they've just sold their company for millions of dollars and they feel empty and numb and depressed on the other side, but they don't feel like they can open up because no one's gonna be like, oh, you poor found, you just made all this money, <laughs> like poor you. <laughs> but actually someone's yes. internal experience can be you know, brutal or devastating or completely just numb and disassociated, like you said. Um, and, and then you, I mean, you also wrote after drinking ayahuasca in July last year, uh, you said that you're not depressed anymore. You quit drinking. And I love this line for the first time ever. I'm truly happy to be alive. Like, holy shit. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's been, and I'm not exaggerating. This was the, my most life-changing experience so far. Mm. And, and I'm so grateful that I, I could experience it. Um, that I really, I don't think that in my case, and I don't, I don't think that's the case for everyone. It's not necessarily for everyone. And, mm -hmm. and I want to clarify that I'm talking about it from a personal experience standpoint, not from 
a researcher standpoint because right. I don't have much scientific knowledge of ayahuasca. Um, so I don't know if that if if it is for everyone, but in my case, I am a hundred percent convinced that if it wasn't for ayahuasca, I wouldn't have found a path out of what I was experiencing because mm. it had been more than you know. It, it had been my whole life, basically, at this point, and there was no sign that it was going to change. So I'm incredibly grateful that I met this person who told me about this retreat center in the Netherlands and that I trusted her and that I booked myself in and that I went because it changed my life. Mm, wow. And, and it sounds like, I mean, I imagine you tried other more traditional approaches before that and they clearly didn't have the same effect. Yeah, I've I've tried uh I've tried therapy. Uh I've I've tried when I was younger journaling, which I started doing again in preparation for my ayahuasca ceremonies and that I haven't mm. stopped doing since then. So I've been writing oh, every day. Yeah, wow. it's it's amazing. And I had tried over the years to get back into journaling, but the most I could do um, which is kind of uh, ironic is the most popular tool that I have on my website is this quick weekly review that I have and that mm-hmm. I every week I receive emails telling me I've never managed to write every week and to review my week. And thanks to your tool, I can do it. I've been doing it for one year, two years, etc. And mm-hmm. that, that tool I created that's extremely simple was born from the fact that I didn't manage to stick to the free flow journaling. And since my ayahuasca ceremonies, I've been journaling every morning, free flow journaling, pages and pages, not always, sometimes it's just a few paragraphs, but I'm writing every morning and I I get actual pleasure from, from it. It's, it's actually something I look forward to, which I never managed to create before. That's amazing. Is that like a morning page practice where you're just kind of like letting it rip, like free flow consciousness? Yeah. It's just, uh, just, yeah. Exactly. I don't try necessarily like the morning pages to get to a certain number of pages. So sometimes really it's just one paragraph if I have nothing else that I want to write about that day. Mm. But it's become a ritual. I make a cup of coffee and I sit down and I open my journal and then I I see whatever is on my mind and I put it on paper. Mm, Beautiful. Uh, So I'm curious to um, like dig into the the ceremony a little bit more. And, And I imagine, you know, probably the majority of listeners haven't taken part in a ayahuasca ceremony. Um, what, what were some of your like fears and hesitations as you were going into it? And, and, and what was the actual ceremony like for you? Like, like what was your experience? My fear was, which I think is pretty common. I had heard that everyone was getting terribly sick <laughs> when they, <laughs> um and so yeah no one likes that in general but i personally particularly uh hate vomiting and so i it's something that i i really 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 hate like more than people it's not unpleasant it's something i actually fear so that was that was my main fear which you know because uh is is not necessarily like the the big like psychological or philosophical one that you would you would expect but for me that that was that and also before my ceremonies we were told so as i said i started journaling again because we were told for the dieta to mm-hmm. to spend a few weeks with ourselves as much as possible mm-hmm. um 
and and to try to incorporate some sort of mindfulness practice into into our days. So I've never really managed to stick with meditation. It's something I do a few times a month and I never managed to <laughs> I never managed to stick to. It. But I I remember that I really enjoyed journaling when I was younger. So I picked that. And and you're supposed to kind of think about your intention for the ceremonies. And so I dutifully wrote every day, several times a day. I was taking mm. my notebook with me everywhere. I was on the train. I was writing for a few mm. weeks, trying to figure out what is my intention. And mm. I could not figure out what my intention was. <laughs> I <laughs> I just, the, you know, the, the closest I managed to get to was just, I, I just want to feel better in, in, my, mm. in my mind and in my body. And, and that's it. But I didn't have anything more precise than that. So when I showed up at the retreat center, we all had individual conversations with the curandero, which is the person leading the ceremonies to discuss our intentions. And I almost felt like the bad student who showed up <laughs> with her. <laughs> so my dog ate my homework. I'm sorry. I didn't do it. <laughs> um, so I told him, I'm sorry. I, I told him I, I wrote every day. I did what you said and I, I can't, I, I don't know. And I told him, I think my only intention is to feel better. And he was like, that's a great intention. That's perfect. You don't, you don't have to have anything um, more precise than this. And um, Aya, as, uh, as they, they call her, will take care of the rest. So don't worry. What's important is that you, you did do the work before coming mm -hmm. and, and yeah. that's it. If that's the conclusion, that's it. Um, and I also told him, uh, that I stopped drinking for those few weeks before the ceremony. So it was amazing for me. It was, you know, already seeing beneficial effects even before going into the ceremonies. I was already sleeping better. My mind was clearer. My stress mm -hmm. levels were, were down. So, so I was, I was excited, scared of being sick, but excited, but nervous. And what was really interesting, so uh, for listeners who have never done an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, I, I'm just going to share what he told us before the ceremonies because I thought that was fascinating. So he told us that anyone who takes ayahuasca will experience five different effects and you can either experience just one of them at the time you can experience them in combination. You can experience only two or three of them, but not all of them. So out of those five effects, uh, he said, so four of them, it's, uh, it's a gamble. You have no idea. And even for the same person across different ceremonies, that may vary. And then there's the one last effect that everyone is going to have. So the first four were visual. So you can have uh, visual effects, hallucinations that can happen either with your eyes opened or your eyes closed or both or no visual effects. They can be cognitive in the sense that you're going to think in ways that you've never thought before, making connections between ideas and experiences and your past and your future in a way that mm -hmm. your mind has never managed to do before. Mm -hmm. And so, so that those are cognitive effects or mental effects. The third one is physical. So it's very common, for example, to uh, feel maybe some old wounds that start kind of almost flaring up again that you can feel even though you're completely healed as if you, you experience physically the memory of the wound again. 
you can have some discomfort in some some places in your body and joints and in your your stomach and your loin and or sometimes you can also feel very relaxed completely relaxed like your marshmallow you just can't move etc and then the fourth one is emotional and uh and that that's uh, crying, for example, very common to cry a lot. That can be laughing, which happened during my ceremony. Someone was really laughing a lot. They were having a great time. Um, and, you know, th that can be feelings of anger as well that, that come back, etc. So those are the first four ones that you can, again, experience either in isolation or in combination. And then the fourth one that everyone experiences is purging, which can take different forms. And so that can be vomiting, the one I was very scared of. That can be diarrhea. Mm -hmm. uh, but that can also be tears, not the same ones as the ones from the emotional effect, because you can have just tears, just not feeling anything, but mm -hmm. tears rolling on your face. Mm -hmm. And yawning is also a different one. And sometimes laughing can also be considered um, a, a purging, a way of purging. Even if you don't necessarily feel like anything is funny, you'll you'll just start laughing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was the explanation that we got before the ceremony, which I think is was very helpful for me, and hopefully is helpful for people considering going to a ceremony. And that was it. Then we we went into our first ceremonies. I um, I I was told that Aya always gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want. So I tried to go in there with an open mind, with my intention of just feeling better. And without going into every single little detail, um, I just I, I just remember that at the beginning, it took a little bit of time to take effect. And because I have experimented in the past with psilocybin and LSD, I had the very naive thought at the time that ayahuasca would not work on me, that I had too much experience with psychedelics, which makes, <laughs> makes me laugh now. <laughs> so I was, that was very naive. And so I was just waiting and waiting and I, I, I took a second cup and, um, and then it, it started happening. I just felt this um, gentle push on my shoulder as if someone was telling me to lay down mm. and relax, mm. which I did. Mm. And I then started seeing lots of like code in front of me, like the metrics basically, but in all different directions, all sorts of different colors. And I tried to decipher what it was saying. I tried to understand, to read the characters, but it was going too fast. And I started panicking. And in my head, I remember saying, stop, you're going too fast. I, I can't read it. I can't read it. And, and just almost like starting hyperventilating a little bit. Mm. And I remembered what my friend who had recom recommended the um, retreat center told me, a mantra that was very helpful. She said, let go or get dragged, mm -hmm. which was yes. so powerful. So I decided to let go. And then all of those lines of code opened like a curtain. Wow and let me pass through. And I found myself in a sort of dark place. It's very hard to describe, but it was really full of nothing. Uh, it was just dark, it was quiet, but it felt like it had everything in it. It was like the whole universe in one place. Mm. Um, and I felt incredibly relaxed. And I was like, this is great. If that's what it's like, I'm very happy. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> 
that lasted for, I don't know how long it lasted. You lose sense of, of time, but that probably lasted for a few seconds. And then I started feeling sick. <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed my bucket and I, I really thought I was going to get sick. Uh, so they give you a bucket and they, they give you, um, tissues and, and everything. So you're comfortable if that happens, mm-hmm. but except of vomiting, like I thought I would, I had this silent scream coming out of my mouth, mm. like something that had been deeply buried inside me for a very, very long time. And I was finally coming out. Mm. And after that. And I'm skipping a few of the, the the less interesting ones. But after that, I started feeling an incredible pain in my stomach. And I, w- I sat up and I was crouching and I started crying, probably like I've never cried before in my entire life. And I had, I had those waves of pain going from my stomach, then through my torso, through my throat and Mm. coming out through my mouth as I was crying. All of those waves of pain just coming out of me. And as that was happening, I felt like it was the pain of my mother and the pain of my grandmother Mm. and the pain of my great grandmother and the pain of all of the women that had come before me that was passing through me and, Mm. and leaving my body. And as each wave of pain was going through me, it became less and less intense until I stopped crying and it was over and I felt the most calm, the most sense of sense of ease, of calm, of feeling good inside of my body and inside of my mind that I had ever felt before in my life. Mm. So those were the the highlights of my ceremony. I, I had other beautiful moments, other moments where I cried. I stretched a lot. I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, touched my body, rediscovered some muscles that I didn't even know existed. Um, there were lots of different phases. It, the ceremony lasts for hours. So there's lots of different episodes and, and once it's over, it's really hard to, you know, imagine that all of that could happen in such a short amount of time. It's, so it's very long and very short at the same time. But mm-hmm. the, those were the highlights. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much that I want to unpack here. I think the first thing I want to underscore is just the, the importance of the preparation and the dieta and, you know, what you went through with, with the journaling and like really getting clear about the intention, not drinking alcohol. And I, I, I mean, from what I understand, the the set and setting is the most powerful and the, the set being um, like your mental set, your mindset and the setting being the environment and really doing that prep work ahead of time. It like, it is part of the ceremony in a way. And I think, you know, people think they can just turn up for a weekend and have these big revelations. But my sense is that it's part of the reason you had such a profound shift was all of that kind of deep intentional work that you did, even though you didn't like get it right. <laughs> you still put in the, the time, which I, I think is, is like an under emphasized piece of, of, of this, of this work. Um, and, and then I, I suppose the other, well, the other question I have is, 
you know, given your pretty deep understanding of neuroscience, of the nervous system, of, of how the how the brain works, like what the fuck is going on? What, what, what do you think actually happened during that that then allowed you to feel this this sense of peace? And 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 has you know has this lasted? Because you know you can t- you can certainly take substances where you'll feel great for like twenty four hours, but it seems like this has been a, an enduring shift in your in your mental well being. Yeah. So from the neuroscience perspective, as I said, I am really not an expert on that topic. Uh, neuroscience is very vast and I'm, I'm studying a very specific brain electrical current. So it's not something that I'm, I'm an expert on, but that being said, I have seen some papers and some emerging evidence that some psychedelics increase neuroplasticity and that that may be a factor if you are, as you said, the set and the setting, if you're prepared, if you're safe, mm-hmm. uh, if you're guided in that experience, it may be an opportunity to rewire some of the deeply ingrained thought patterns and emotional patterns that you may have acquired either in childhood or even later in adulthood, whether it's trauma or whether it's self-beliefs that you have. So... That is an, that that is obviously unfortunately because of the war on drugs in the US, we've stopped all research for decades on this. And it's mm-hmm. only now that we're starting looking at these questions again. But there's very interesting evidence suggesting that the the induced neuroplasticity when you take some psychedelics may play a big role in terms of inducing this kind of really big change, that very big, profound personal change that I have experienced. And what's absolutely fascinating, I think, is that it is lasting change. A lot of people who do those ceremonies report seeing some of the effects, like having that change being still visible month after their experience with ayahuasca, years after their experience with ayahuasca. And that is certainly my case. And I'm not the only one, I have quite a few friends uh, who've also worked with ayahuasca and, and again, it's, it's a lasting change. It doesn't necessarily feel like something like, like many, unfortunately, pharmaceutical approaches where you're supposed to take the drug every day Mm -hmm. in order to manage your mood. In this case, a single so-called intervention, if you wanted to use the language that they use in clinical studies, has an impact that can last for a very long time. That's absolutely fascinating. And that's that's something that also suggests that there is actual rewiring going on in your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the phrase that your very wise friend gave you of uh, let go or be dragged. And my sense is that, I mean, this is just my interpretation of the of the experience it is is ayahuasca will increase and amplify the sensations the traumas that are already there to such a degree that that we can either continue resisting them which is really what we're doing i think the whole time to it to an extent um or because they're amplified to such a degree they're so intense that we can actually let go and surrender into them and if we have the the courage and the I think a degree of like mindfulness as well, we can really go into the pain and, and into the hurt, into the heartbreak, into the the grief. And th- I mean, that's certainly been my experience as well in that 
the most profound sense of connection and joy and bliss has been on the other side of allowing myself to actually feel the pain that I didn't even know was there. And it sounds like that's kind of what happened to you as well. Um, and, and it's almost like the, the ayahuasca is just a very efficient mechanism for surfacing these, these incomplete reflexes, these stored emotions that are there, but just bringing them up to the surface to be looked at and felt and, and let go of. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you for making that connection with my friend's mantra, because to build on what you just said, I think something that's really interesting too is that at least in my case, I've also noticed that I tend to let go of negative thoughts a lot quicker now mm. than I used to. So it's almost as if not only it has helped me deal with past trauma and experiences, but it is also making me more resilient in the sense to what I'm experiencing now and what I will experience mm. in the future. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it also has that effect as well. Mm, that's interesting. So I'm curious, what are some other maybe more subtle shifts that you've noticed in the past, I guess, like nine months or so? Um, and, and it sounds like there's a theme emerging of, I'm almost imagining like a, like a clenched fist that you had. And that now you're slowly learning how to like, let go and be with more ambiguity, less controlling, <laughs> like all these things, like, <laughs> like be in, in the liminality, I guess. Um, is, is that true? Do you think? And what, is, I mean, journaling every morning, like what are some of the other ripple effects that you've noticed? Yeah, absolutely. I letting go and living in the the liminal and being okay with ambiguity and not knowing and not being in control has definitely been one of the more subtle changes that I've been experiencing, but that's been really profound in terms of impact on my day-to-day -day life and even work. Mm. I feel very comfortable now. Just, just to give you an example, you know, we were supposed to record that episode last week and I messaged you and I say, I'm not feeling well, uh, let's postpone. Mm. And I actually almost didn't work at all last week. Like almost didn't open my laptop. Mm. That would have never happened before. Mm. I would have just powered through, powered through my illness. And right. even if it felt miserable, I, you know, deadlines and responsibilities, people waiting for, for work from me. And mm. last week I was sick. And so I messaged everyone that needed to, to know. And I took the week off. And, and I just, it's interesting because this is advice that I've always given to my friends. I've always told them, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I always thought like my friends who work at, at startups or, uh, you know, you have to sometimes lead big teams, but like just reminding them of telling them you're not a neurosurgeon with someone on the operating table. You can take a few days off and nobody's going to die. And that's something that as often we do that, we're very good at giving advice to our friends, but not very good at applying it to, to ourselves. And, mm. and now I do apply that advice to myself and it's not even something I have to talk myself through or to rationalize. It just feels like the right thing to do. I, I feel in sync with my body and, and it feels completely okay. And so not only I'm able to take the break when I need it, but Compared to before, 
it's not to say that I don't have a little bit of guilt sometimes. It's not like, you know, it's not perfect. And I don't want to paint a, a picture that's also, that's an exaggeration of reality. But compared to before, I have way less guilt. I'm way more able to actually enjoy the break, focus on recovery mm. until I'm back. I'm ready to be back at work fully instead of trying to to kind of like make the process faster. Mm. So that's, that's been, that's, that's a subtle change in mindset, but that has had profound repercussions in the way I, I manage my time and I live my life in general. Mm. And that's a huge change. And, and it sounds like you're like listening to your body a lot more as well. And like, almost like trusting that as opposed to before this is a sense of override. And I think this comes back to like the numbing piece we were talking about earlier, where when we are habitually numbing ourselves, we're just less in tune with the the data and feedback that's that's coming. And so if we are sick, we're like, oh, it's it's fine. And just like keep on cranking through. Um, and uh, you see that I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago, and it was very interesting because I recognized myself in them when they were talking about their current situation Mm. where they do recovery, but they do recovery. They do it. It's a thing they do. So because it's recovery, they're going to read a book and uh, they're going to drink like a, you know, a specific kind of herbal tea and they're going to go for a walk and they're going to do all of these things. And mm. it's this checklist of things mm -hmm. that you're supposed to do when you're so, you, you want to take care of your health and yeah. take care of your body. But the way they were talking about it, I could hear a disconnect between their mind and their body. They were applying instructions from a cookbook, basically. <laughs> 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 and yeah. and that's what, you know, it, it is it is funny, but this is what I did for most of, of my life. And, you know, I did take breaks. I've been writing about mindful productivity for three years now, so... I did, I did do take the breaks, but I was keeping them quite short and focused. And I even wrote articles about like how to make the most of your breaks. And I look back on these and, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I can now see what was wrong with them. But at the time mm. I didn't, I just, I just thought that that was a great way to take care of my mind and my body. And so mm. now I'm completely okay taking, you know, uh, taking a break and like, and, and eating some, some pizza with like lots of oil on it. If that's what my body wants <laughs> and not going for that walk, if that's not what I want necessarily at that moment, because I, my mm. body will tell me when it, it's time and I actually do want to get some fresh air. So, yeah. um, so yeah, completely different approach now. Yeah. I, I love that. For me, it kind of comes back to, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, but like trusting the wisdom of the body, trusting the wisdom of the nervous system. Um, and, and actually, you know, listening and then more often than not, uh, the body kind of knows what we need and what we want and, and the mind can help sometimes it's like, like, yeah, recruit the mind to help this, this happen. But, um, it's, it's definitely a lot of deconditioning that needs, that needs to happen. Um, so I, I'd love to segue this into, uh, you gave a talk in New York recently, I believe on goals and ambition. And uh, our, our mutual friend Visa tweeted a, a quote from you and he said, ambition is about traversing the liminal space from where you are to where you want to be. So I'm super curious to hear more about this and, and maybe specifically how has your relationship to ambition shifted after this, after this ceremony? 
So the reason why I shared that definition uh, in my talk is that I don't think that at its core, ambition necessarily needs to change. We have all of these conversations about what is ambition exactly. And I, I don't think it has to change. It has unfortunately been associated with seeking money and status and power and all of those kind of like traditional markers of success. But it is just an association that has been created with the way it's been used. But if you go back to its most basic definition, as I said in my talk, it's really just that liminal space between where you are and where you want to be. And then what we can change, though, is how do we react to finding ourselves in that liminal space? Mm. And this is where what I used to do and what a lot of us still do is that because being in a liminal space, which is uncertain, where you're not quite sure how to cross the chasm, how to get on the other side, what's going to be there, liminal spaces are intrinsically scary. So our instinct is to get out of them as quickly as possible. Let's cross to the other side. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's very tempting to climb onto the ladder of linear goals with those step-by-step -step recipes that we've discussed a little bit earlier, you and I, mm -hmm. because it gives you this illusion of certainty, this illusion of control, of visibility over what's going to come next. It's less scary. The problem with those kinds of linear goals, with those ladders that you climb, is that you'll probably get where you, you're trying to go, but that's only where you're going to go. You already know the destination, basically. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you embrace the liminal space, if you see it as a playground rather than a very scary environment that you need to get out of as quickly as possible, you can then realize that it's an amazing opportunity for growth, for learning, for self-discovery, even for connection with fellow liminal minds that are navigating that space with you and all trying to figure it out together. And instead of having this linear approach, you can have a more cyclical approach where you can run little experiments you decide that for the next few months, this is what you want to learn. So you're going to run that little experiment and you disconnect your actions from any sense of success and failure because the only goal, the only success is to learn something, whether mm. it's about the world or about yourself. If you learn something through that experiment, just like a scientist who performs an experiment and it's not saying like, oh, I succeeded or I failed. They just say, here's the result of the experiment. Here's what we learned. Mm. Applying that to your, your life is such a freeing way to, to relate to ambition because then your ambition mm. is to grow, to explore, to play, to connect. It's not to climb a ladder mm. anymore. So those are some of the, the ideas that I shared in that talk in New York. Yeah, I, I love this. And I can't wait until it's live as well. Um, a couple of things come to mind. One, you, your definition of ambition be, being that liminal space between where we are today and where we want to be. Um, I, I guess like the, the interesting assumption is, is like, how do you know where you want to be? And I think that many of us are actually disconnected from our deeper 
longings, our deeper desires, and that the the wants that we have are actually just kind of inherited or copied from our parents or from culture. And, and so maybe like what I'm curious about is like how is that maybe the orientation or, or like how have your desires and your wants shifted at all? Maybe they're the same. Maybe they're just to keep learning, keep growing, and you know have this keep living an interesting life. <laughs> yes, and and you're right that a lot of the those more linear goals that we have when we climb the ladder, they are shaped by fear, basically. If you go back to right. all of these, they're all shaped by fear. Fear right. of not belonging, fear of failure, uh, you know, fear of being judged, fear. It's, it's all fear. And so all of these are driven by what society is expecting from us, what we think society is expecting from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being shifting to mindset, your mindset. So you embrace that liminal space is really about letting go of those fears. Mm. So you actually make room for figuring out what it is exactly that you want. Mm. And also accepting the fact that you don't necessarily to have that one big passion, this one big end goal that you're going to pursue for the rest of your life. What is it you want right now? What what is where where is your where is your curiosity calling you? Mm. What you know, what is the the current path? If if every moment is a crossroads, do you want to turn right or to turn left? Those are the only questions you need to ask yourself on a daily basis. Mm. And you can do experiments, as I said, for a few months. And then once you feel like you've learned enough, mm. you can go on to the, the next one. And keep on growing this way. And when you look back, actually, you'll realize in the same way that we were saying, looking back five years later and say, wow, so that's all I I accomplished. (laughs) So you do end up accomplishing a lot, actually, when you do this. Mm -hmm. But the difference is that you're not following this perfectly drawn map in front of you that tells you exactly what is the next step that you need to take. Mm, yeah, I love that. <clears throat> I love that so much. The other thing that came to mind is I, I remember watching a YouTube video on, I think it was like Stories of Old, which is a fantastic YouTube channel. And he talked about the difference between liminal spaces versus liminoid spaces. And and I think his definition of liminal was something around, I might be bringing my interpretation here, but like like the fertile void. It's like this like fertile uncertainty that leads to something unknown. And the classic example is like the caterpillar that then creates a cocoon and a chrysalis and literally dissolves into mush. Like it literally like just goes gooey. (laughs) And then somehow you through imaginal cells creates a butterfly. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're maybe a more intense version of, of what you're describing here. And whereas the liminoid is, there's a sense of like, resistance to that space it's not it's not held it's not it's not sacred it's it's like resisted and the liminoid can be um it, it's not generative in the way that the, the liminal is, is generative um and it feels like that relates to this process as, as well and, and you know coming back to the metaphor of the caterpillar and butterfly i think that's kind of what's happening like we are on micro and maybe macro scales we're kind of the caterpillar constantly turning into <laughs> into goo and then coming out as a butterfly on the other side. Well, you know, a big example might be your ayahuasca journey. And there's maybe, you know, daily or weekly examples as well. 
but I think it's a, it's a, it's a more like it's a more beautiful way to live in a way. I just like that's the kind of the the world that at least I I want to live in. Yes, and uh, when you think about it, life itself is a liminal space between your birth and your death. Mm, right. So you know you and this is something you can't change. It's just it's just the way the way it is. And so you may as well embrace it instead of resisting it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, <to laughs> I went, I went quite philosophical here. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, you could say that, you know, maybe death as well is a liminal space. <laughs> We're even less, <laughs> they're even le less aware of. Um, so maybe to kind of help bring this down to earth for listeners, um, something that you, you wrote about as well is, is instead of progressing on this linear scale that I think is very common in our culture, the like, like up and to the right, like hockey stick graphs, um, you talked about cyclical goals and, and I think like growth loops was the process that you, that you spoke to. So what is an, what is a growth loop and what is an example of a growth loop that you've designed in your life? Yeah. So a growth loop is very simple. You just need to commit to an action and then monitor your progress and then reflect on the results. And you'll probably recognize that it is inspired by the scientific method, but really this is the way nature works in general, going through those cycles of experimentation that are not as polished, obviously, as this. But what nature does is running little experiments seeing what works, what doesn't, and then discarding what doesn't and keeping what works. And so it's very similar to, if, if you like cooking, you already do that in one part of your life. When you, you're making a dish, you add some ingredients, some spices, you taste it. And then depending on how that tastes, you decide in future recipes to keep that change or, or not keep it basically, if that was better or not. And so that's basically a growth loop. And it's like how at every iteration, you add a layer of learning because you tweaked something in the previous iteration and you decide whether mm. you're going to keep that or not. And mm. I've gone through several of these. Um, my, you know, writing for me, for example, I've gone through several of these loops. My very first loop with Nest Labs, my very first experiment was writing a hundred articles in a hundred days, more exactly weekdays, because I wanted to have my weekends off. So that was one experiment. And I learned so much that was absolutely amazing. This provided me with the foundation of everything that I do today, because this is how I started connecting with people online and kind of finding mm -hmm. my tribe, but it was obviously not sustainable. So I... I kept the writing part, but I tweaked the, frequ the frequency after that. And then, so I, then I wrote three articles every week and then again became unsustainable. And then I did two articles every week. And now in my current cycle of experimentation, I only write one article every week and I have hired another writer who writes the second one under their own name. So it's very clear for readers who wrote which article in the newsletter. So mm -hmm. that's the current cycle. Um, and this writer just told me that she's going to move on and because she was hired for a very 
big contract by another company. She's amazing. I'm super excited for her. So now I have to decide what is the next cycle going to look like? Do I just mm. replace this person with someone else or, and this is what I'm going to do, do I use this opportunity, finding myself in this unplanned moment <laughs> of uncertainty uh -huh. <laughs> to reimagine what my newsletter looks like, what my writing schedule looks like, what the, the reading experience looks like for, for people who receive the Nest Labs newsletter. Mm. So using that uncertainty as a catalyst for creativity, for, for thinking in a different way about the things that I've been doing for years now. So that's an example of a uh, of cycle that I have. Another one is with academic research. So as I told you, I went through that first cycle where I was like, I'm going to do a master's degree going back to school. And that was great. I loved it. So I decided to add another layer to that cycle. So it's bigger, PhD. more yeah. ambitious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a big great so, Exactly. But I could have stopped also and say that was a great growth group and I'm done with this one. And so I decided to go another, do another loop around it with the PhD. And then once I'm done with the, the PhD, like there are several options. What's the next layer or do I stop? And what I'm starting to gather from my experience is that I love doing research and I love asking those questions and exploring those ideas, but I don't think I want to stay in academia after my PhD. And so again, I'm starting to think about like, what is that next loop going to, to look like? Uh, how can I do the things I love without having to, to actually stay and work in an environment that I don't think is the, the right environment for me? And so I'm asking myself lots of different questions. What does it look like to set up an independent lab where maybe we can all study neuroscience with my friends who are interested in this topic? Oh, or what, what does that look like? You know, so I, every time that, I go through another loop. What I really like is that I just take the basis of the previous loop. I don't feel like I'm starting from scratch. And I just ask myself, what do I tweak? What are the parts that I want to keep? And what are the parts that I want to discard? I absolutely love that. Also count me in for, for like coming in and being an intern in your lab at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I like what I'm, I also live a similar way, I think, um, like that's how I've designed my projects and experiments in life as well. Um, I think that the question that came to mind, you mentioned the metaphor of like a chef who tastes a recipe halfway through and they're like, that tastes good or that tastes delicious or that doesn't. And that's like how they orient. And, and I'm curious and I'm, I'm curious in, in myself for this as well, but like, how do you, what's your compass? What's your orientation for making those tweaks? I, I, for me, it's, it's often like a sense of like aliveness, expansiveness, like fun, honestly, sometimes, um, like how do you, cause I think that's where like the rubber meets the road. It's like, it's like, what is driving those tweaks in you? How, like which part of you is deciding which experiments to keep going with or get bigger and which ones to discard? That. That question is exactly why metacognition, self-reflection, and whatever you know tool that you use to stay in touch with your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions is so important to incorporate when you work with growth groups, because you really need to understand how that experiment is affect affecting you. Uh, and you really need to do that in a proactive manner. So to give you another example of 
a loop that didn't work out at all for me, I started a YouTube channel and I did that for a few months and I managed every week to publish my weekly video. But every week I was dreading it. I was dreading mm. having to sit in front of that camera mm. and having to figure out like, you know, how I was going to present, uh, how editing it and uh, making sure it looked good. And I kept looking at other videos of other YouTubers that always looked so much better than mine. Um, and I had this comparison anxiety going on. It was really not fun. And so that's what was interesting is that if you just look at the the results in terms of have you achieved the outcome that you wanted to have. So yes, I did publish all of my videos every week the channel was growing. So if you just look at those metrics, technically that experiment was successful, mm -hmm. but growth groups are not about just that. They're also about how it feels to do the experiment. For me, it didn't feel good. So I stopped. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't published any YouTube videos in a very long time because that was not something that was bringing me joy. And now mm -hmm. I'm thinking again about and I started very recently actually asking myself the question because at the time I, it was just like, I don't know why I was, I was, I had such resistance, but I just noticed the resistance and I stopped. And now I felt, I felt ready again to try and consider why did I feel this resistance? Mm. And so I'm trying to think what would another version of this loop look like? What, mm -hmm. what were the things that were getting in the way? And so, for example, I'm considering um, taking public speaking coaching, for example, because mm. I feel like, weirdly, I'm very comfortable on podcasts where I feel like I'm having a conversation with someone, but you just put me in front of a camera with nobody else in the room and just looking at this <coughs> device uh -huh. and I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable. So yeah. I'm like, okay, are there people who can teach me how to become more comfortable with this? And is it about my setup? Does it need to be more comfortable instead of every time having to set up everything? And that in itself was a source of anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I think mm. it's also completely okay to, when you, you go through that metacognitive practice to know that sometimes the answer is keep going, that things are going great. Sometimes it's tweaking things for the next iteration but also sometimes stopping either indefinitely or even for sometimes just for a very long time, stopping the experiment because it doesn't feel right right mm. now is also completely okay. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And instantly I share the exact same thing. Like I, I'll sometimes imagine there's like a group of strangers behind the camera lens. <laughs> like I'm talking to these imaginary people. <laughs> um, yeah, I, no, I, I really resonate with that. Um, and I think it, it's a really good point that like sometimes even, even though we might know there's like a specific piece that we have resistance to, it's also okay to just completely switch if that's what feels right. And then you know, maybe as it sounds like you're doing down the line, you get more analytical, reflective, like what was the specific component that you had resistance to? Like for me, I'd imagine it would be like the editing process or all of the admin faff around it that would just suck the joy out of me and so i'd be like well maybe i could commit to a youtube channel if all of that was taken care of and it's like okay well maybe that's that's doable um yeah so i i love that um all right well I, i'd love to ask you i have five rapid fire questions and then i think we'll begin to wrap up how does that sound yes let's do it awesome okay question number one 
What is something that you suspect is true, but have no proof for? That, I don't know if there's zero proof of this, but I feel like uh, plants and trees have personalities. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah, the secret life of trees. Is a, I know it's a weird a one. Beautiful, but no, that's yeah, great. I, re I read it. That's great. I read it, but I don't think it talks about personality. It's like it talks about a lot of other things, communication, etc. Not personality, but I I do feel I have some favorite trees, and I do feel like they have a personality. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's brilliant. Okay, what what is one question or practice for self exploration that you might share with our listeners? It's, uh, oh, it's something I discovered on TikTok recently, actually. Um, so there's this filter that has been very popular and that changes your face to what you look, you supposedly looked like as a teenager. Whoa. Um, and obviously it doesn't look like exactly what you looked like, but so it's just imagine what a younger version of yourself was. And there were lots of videos of people crying because mm seeing this younger version of themselves gave them an opportunity to tell them everything that they wish they could have told them at the time, telling yeah. them that it's going to be all right, telling them that they're beautiful mm. and yeah, telling them all of these things. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not something I've tried because I've just discovered that literally a few days ago, but I just feel like that could be a really interesting practice, a really interesting exercise of maybe just writing to your younger self or recording. If you're not into writing, recording a little video to your younger self and and telling them everything that you, you wish someone had told you at the time. Mm, that's beautiful. I just got, it's got chills listening to that. And also what a beautiful use of what is typically like demonized as like the worst of the addictive <laughs> social media platforms. Yes. <laughs> like that's, that's a really beautiful use of TikTok. Wow. Okay. Question number three, what is your favorite mental model? Um, In this moment. I think it's uh is it Hanlon's razor or Okan's razor? I think it's Hanlon's razor. I always confuse them. The one that is, uh, do not attribute to malice what could be attributed to stupidity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, the former. So it's yeah. one of the, yeah, one of the razors and I always confuse them. Um, so yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, I it, it really helps me not get angry at people sometimes. <laughs> mm. Nice. Yeah. I, I think of that as like make generous assumptions to the extent possible. That's beautiful. What yes. is one interesting neuroscience fact that not many people know about that you think is interesting? I discovered recently that there's a part of the, the brain called the thalamus that is activated when you're in high situations of uncertainty and so when you you don't know what decisions you should take when it feels a little bit risky to be, make a mistake etc and what i find really interesting is that when i studied the thalamus 
in my master's degree, the teacher described it as the crossroad of the brain because it's a part of the brain that integrates lots of information from different parts. And so I really loved discovering that the crossroad of the brain is also the part that one of the parts, obviously it's a bit more complex than that, but one of the parts that deals with uncertainty. Mm. What is your greatest aspiration for Nest Labs in the coming months or years? In the coming month, it's training my team to be fully independent. And I definitely think that we'll get there. It's, uh, yeah, it's not even going to be that hard because they're super, super, super smart and I'm so lucky. But uh, I had a few newcomers, uh, the new joiners. And so every they have to learn everything, but they're learning super fast. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I would, that's my biggest aspiration to have a very, it's a very small team, but mighty team that can mm-hmm. manage most of the operations so I can focus on the writing. Amazing. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much uh, for this. Where where can listeners learn more about you, about Nest Labs, read your essays? What are some links that people can follow? The easiest is to go to just nestlabs.com. And if you go to nestlabs.com slash newsletter, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter where I send an essay every week about some of the topics that we've just discussed today. Mm -hmm. The one last week was on the science of curiosity, which I freaking loved. It was great. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yes. I really, I really liked writing that one. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not sharing my, my Twitter account because I created that handle with, um, I was a teenager and it's impossible to spell. So uh, I assume it, you can put the link in the show notes the, the and, uh, and people can click on it. Yeah, the link will definitely be in the show notes. Thank you. Um, okay, well, I, I'd like to close with uh, this line from Rilke. And this is actually very appropriate. He said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind... What is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Right now, it would be, how can I be the best friend and family member for the people that I love? Beautiful. Well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Johnny. It was great. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.